morning, church. How are you today? God is on the throne. The King is risen from the grave. Do you believe that? Conquered death, hell, and the grave for those who are in Christ. Well, I hope you do. And if you don't, I want to encourage you to believe that today. Uh, to be rescued uh, from sin and death and darkness. And, and transformed by the saving power of Christ. We're going to continue in our series in Hebrews chapter 11 today. Hebrews chapter 11, we'll pick up in verse 17. I want to introduce for you Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 through 22. At the background, at least of the first half of this passage, is a story that happens in Genesis 22. You'll, you'll notice that really, so far, Hebrews chapter 11 is tracking through the book of Genesis. And it's showing us that the book of Genesis is a story of a people of God who have faith. God promises to Abraham uh, in Genesis a land, an offspring who was going to be, who would become a nation, and then blessing that would flow from his sons, and in particular a son, a seed, to people all over the world. And so for the promises of God to come true to Abraham, for them to have a land, to form a nation, and to inhabit a land, there has to be a son. And you recall last week that Abraham believed that God would give him a son, and God finally does give him that son. In Genesis 15 is when Abraham believes God. And then in Genesis chapter 16, you remember the story Abraham and Isaac, excuse me, Abraham and Sarah try to help God out a little bit. Abraham believes God. God, you're going to give me a son. And then in chapter 16, he's like, now let me help you out. And so goes to his handmaiden, and then you remember. Ishmael is the result. But God, God's like, I didn't, I didn't need your help. I'm going to give you a son through you and Sarah. Have any of y'all ever tried to help God out? Did you know God doesn't need your help? He just needs your belief, your trust, your faith. God, God has other plans for Abraham and for Sarah. And the plan is for them to have a son named Isaac. And it would be Isaac, not Ishmael, through whom God would keep his promises. All of that background is very important for understanding what's going on in Hebrews 11. So Abraham knows that the promises of God, in order for them to be fulfilled, they've got to be fulfilled through Isaac. And then we get to Genesis 22. Ishmael has left the scene. It's only Abraham and Isaac. And God says to Abraham, hey, uh, take your own son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I will tell you. Just, just to clarify, a burnt offering means you kill the sacrifice, right? You, you kill the animal, you drain the blood, you burn the carcass. That's what God asked of Abraham to do with Isaac. Can you imagine that? All that time of waiting for a son. He's a hundred years old before Isaac is born. And then he raises Isaac up to be that son. Isaac's probably 12 or 13 years old at the time that Abraham gets the command. And so Abraham's gotten out of potty training. He's gone through diapers and he's just about to be a, a man of his, of his own standing. And God says, hey, take him out to the land of Moriah. I'm going to show you a mountain and you'll offer him there as a sacrifice. So I don't know about you, but if you've had seasons in your walk with Christ where you're like, man, God, these circumstances don't seem to line up with your promises in my life, Abraham can relate to that. It, it totally doesn't make sense that God would ask him to kill the son through whom he had already promised that the promises would come. 
Now you remember the rest of the story, right? Abraham obeys God. He goes to the land of Moriah. He's about to kill Isaac and an angel of the Lord in verse 13 of Genesis 22. He stops him. But the question that Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17 through 20, or 17 through 19 is committed to is this. How in the world did Abraham obey God up to that point? How in the world did he know that God would have to keep his word and that Isaac would be the one that the promises would come through, and yet God was telling him to kill Isaac? How did this make sense in Abraham's mind? Furthermore, the answer to that question, how did it play out in the lives of Abraham's descendants? Would you hear with me, beginning in verse 17 of chapter 11, the word of God. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, in Isaac your descendants shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received them back as a type. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau, even regarding the things to come. By faith, Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. Would you pray with me? God, help us to have the sort of faith that Abraham displayed in Genesis 22. God, help us not only to have the faith of Abraham, but the faith of his descendants who believe that you would keep your promises through your son. Lord, in a, in a world that's broken, in a, in a country that is hurting, we can look all around us and our circumstances tell us that this world doesn't have hope, that this world doesn't have answers for the problems that we face. And we thank you, God, that there is an otherworldly hope. There's a hope that's been brought in from the heavens, and his, his name is Jesus. So God, fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith today. Give us uh, new and renewed confidence that you do, in fact, keep your promises through Christ, your risen Son. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. There's two points that I want to share with you this morning. And again, we're getting examples in all of Hebrews, examples of what saving faith looks like. Right? Faith is not just this abstract idea. It's not just feeling good. It is faith in a particular God who saves in a particular way. And so to have saving faith, the first thing we see in verses 17 through 19 is that we must believe that God keeps his promises by raising his promised son from the dead. Now that's a mouthful. But God keeps his promises through a promised son. And that son doesn't just come, but he is going to be raised from the dead. In verses 17 through 19, the text tells us that Abraham offered Isaac as a sacrifice. Now, we know that the Lord stopped him before he killed his son, but the text tells us that he offered him to the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean that he literally killed him, but that he presented him as an offering to the Lord, as a gift to the Lord. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered, that word in the Greek is in the perfect tense, which means uh, it's completed action with enduring results. So the moment that God said, I'm going to test you, I'm going to test you by you offering your son. Abraham, in his heart, had committed to follow through with whatever God asked him to do. 
So on this three-day journey to the land of Moriah, it was like Isaac was as good as presented. In his heart, Isaac was as good as already sacrificed because he was going to do what God asked him to do. And the point we see here is that God sees the heart. God saw that Abraham was by faith in the process of offering Isaac to him. He was really going to do it. We, we see the details in the story of Genesis 22. Abraham took Isaac, his son. He took the rope and the wood and the fire and the knife and the three-day journey to where Isaac would be offered. And as Abraham took the knife and was about to bring it down into the heart of his own son, his only begotten son, as the text tells us, the angel of the Lord stopped him. As a brief pastoral aside this morning, now... Now that Jesus has come and he's the greater Isaac, the one who fulfills the sacrifice that was needed, we see that this is a picture of what Jesus has done for us. So we don't have to offer our children as sacrifices, literal sacrifices to God, but we are called to offer our children to God. We are called to present our children to him. God still calls us to offer our kids to the Heavenly Father. And the way that we offer them is not by driving a knife into their chest, but we offer them to the Lord by sacrificing in our home. What we think about, what we talk about, what we spend our time on. You know, a lot of parents today sacrifice in all kinds of ways so their children can be great at every sport and every extracurricular activity there is. Now, I'm not saying sports are bad. I love sports growing up. I'm not saying extracurricular activities are bad. I love that my kids are involved in art and piano and music. But at the end of the day, the one thing that our family should be characterized is by a loving devotion to the Heavenly Father. We should be raising our kids to be champions of the Gospel, saturating their minds and hearts in His Word, teaching them to serve and sacrifice for others as He did for us, leading them to love their church and pray for the lost and representing Jesus wherever He should take them. On this Father's Day, I want to ask you dads to do a little checkup. How's it going in your home? You grandfathers, to do a little checkup. How's it going in your grandparenting? Do your grandparents know, do your children know, do your great-grandchildren know that your influence in their life is unto the end that they would be able to offer themselves as living sacrifices to the living Lord Jesus Christ? You see, church, God saw the heart of Abraham, a heart of trusting sacrifice, even when the command of God seemed to contradict the promises of God. Did you catch that? The command of God to go offer Isaac seems to contradict the promise that the promises come through Isaac. If Abraham obeys, how in the world will God keep his promises? As verse 18 reminds us, Isaac was the son of that God had said, in Isaac, your descendants will be called. He's the only option on the table, and God says to take him out. His promises are to come through Isaac, and Abraham sets out to obey God's command regardless of the seeming contradiction. And what's amazing in Genesis 22 is what we do not see. You remember this story? God tests Abraham, and Abraham, what does he do? He just goes. We don't see any arguing or debating or scheming or pleading, no questioning. We only see trusting obedience on the part of Abraham. By Genesis 22, Abraham had learned to live by faith. 
Time and again, he had seen the faithfulness of the Lord. And if God could give him a biological son at the age of 100 and Sarah at 90, then God, if necessary, could raise Isaac from the dead. You say, that's crazy. He believed in the resurrection all the way back in Genesis 22. That's exactly what we see in Hebrews eleven nineteen. Do you see that? Abraham considered. Now, the word considered there doesn't mean he pondered or thought. Maybe that was an option. It means he was convinced. He was inwardly persuaded that God is able to raise people even from the dead. Why did he believe that? Who had God raised from the dead by Genesis 22? Enoch had walked with God and did not die. But to the best of my recollection, there had not been a resurrection from the dead in Genesis 22. But Abraham believes, look... God, if you've said the promises are coming through Isaac and you've told me to kill Isaac, all I can figure is you're going to raise Isaac from the dead. For those who have a hard time accepting that Jesus is the only way, that faith in a crucified and risen Savior is the only way, remember the context. The book is called Hebrews for a reason. The people he's writing to have an understanding and familiarity with the Old Testament, and they're trying to say, well, we can just get out of the inconvenience of following Jesus. Did you know it's inconvenient to follow a crucified and risen Savior? People don't want to accept that somebody had to take their place. Any other message, do good, try harder, be better, turn over a new leaf, get enlightened, all those messages, those don't offend anybody. But as soon as you say, I could never get there on my own, God had to do it for me through Jesus, people take offense. And so the context in Hebrews is, they're like, let's just go back to the Old Testament, let's sacrifice some animals and do the best we can and ignore this whole Jesus thing. And the author of Hebrews is like, you can't do that. Even your father Abraham was anticipating that the promised Son of God would be crucified and raised in order for the promises of God to be obtained. Abraham's faith was a saving faith. He had resurrection faith. We know this because he says in Genesis 22.5 to his servants, look, we're going to go up on that mountain and we're going to worship me and my son Isaac and we're both going to come back to you together. The only explanation for that is the resurrection. He had a saving faith. He believed that God would raise His promised son from the dead in order to keep His promises. Now, we know that Isaac is not the ultimate promised son of God. We know that that's Jesus because Abraham doesn't literally kill Isaac. But the only thing that stops him is the angel of the Lord. And when the angel of the Lord stops Isaac in the motion of nearly slaying his own son... Hebrews chapter 11 verse 19 says he received him back, meaning it was like he received him back from the dead. For three days, his son was as good as dead to him. But on the third day, he looks up and he sees the mountain and he takes him up and God provides a ram to be slaughtered rather than his son. But Abraham knew the ram was a temporary solution. He understood that a better sacrifice would be required, not a ram, but a lamb. And in Genesis twenty two fourteen, Abraham prophesies, One day in the mount of the Lord, it will be, future tense provided, God's going to send a son to take the place for his people. The resurrection of Isaac was a type. He, do, he didn't literally die, so he was not literally raised. Do you see that in verse 19? It was a picture, a parable of the resurrection that was going to come in Jesus. What felt like a resurrection to Abraham would one day be a literal resurrection through the person of Jesus Christ. 
God doesn't ask Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, but one day a son was going to come in the line of Isaac. He would come from the glory of heaven to be conceived in the Virgin Mary and born in Jesus. Jesus and His Father would walk up the mountain together in order to worship. Jesus, like Isaac, would carry at least part of, it, part of the way His own wood up the mountain. Jesus, Jesus, like Isaac, would trust His Father and He would not open His mouth even as He was placed on the altar. But there are differences in these stories as well. In the case of Jesus... No angel of the Lord ever came to stop the sacrifice. Oh, Jesus could have called legions of angels from heaven, but instead He stayed on the altar bearing our sins so its price could be paid and we could in turn become the sons and daughters of God. For three days it seemed to Abraham that Isaac was as good as dead, but on the third day when God stopped the sacrifice, it was like Isaac was raised. But on the third day in the terms of Jesus, Jesus is the greater Isaac. He is the lamb anticipated by Abraham. He is the one who literally died for our sins and was literally raised on the third day securing once and for all the promises of God. But church, saving faith is more than believing God raised Jesus from the dead. It is also understanding that the God who raised Jesus from the dead will also raise up all who trust in Him. It's not just that Jesus is raised from the dead to be there forever in heaven by Himself. He's there to raise up in Himself all who will trust in Him. So secondly, we need to believe that death will not keep us from seeing the fulfillment of God's promises. Death will not keep us from seeing the fulfillment of God's promises. Verses 20 through 22 show us the forward-looking faith of Abraham's offspring. When Abraham dies, God comes to Isaac and he says, Look, everything I told your father is true for you as well. You're going to have a son, and one day your son will be the source of blessing to many nations. As Isaac is growing older, you remember the story that's pointed out in verse 20, that he blesses his sons Jacob and Esau. You remember Jacob tricks his dad, right, in his old age, he can't see very well. And he tricks his dad in order to get his father's blessing. And we learn that the blessing of God will come through the line of Jacob. How does Isaac know this to be true? He knows it to be true. Do you see it in verse 20? By faith. He believes that God's going to keep and fulfill His promises through a chosen son born in the line of Jacob. But we know that Isaac's blessing is not just about Jacob and Esau. His blessing looks beyond Jacob and looks beyond Esau into the future. Do you see that in verse 20? He blessed them even regarding the things to come. And if you go back and read the blessing, you see that Isaac speaks of nations bowing down to someone in the line of Jacob. He's convinced that a day is coming when people from all nations will acknowledge the superiority of the chosen Son of God. And for that to happen, for people to appreciate the chosen Son of God, people who have formerly died are going to have to be raised up to worship Him. In verse 21, we are reminded that Jacob blessed Joseph's sons. So do you see the chain of blessing? Abraham blesses Isaac, Isaac blesses Jacob, and now Jacob is blessing Joseph's sons. And when is he pronouncing this blessing? As he was dying. Even in his death, he believes by faith that God is going to keep his promises. He believes that these descendants of Abraham 
would belong in the new heavens and in the new earth through resurrection faith. He believes that God's going to keep His promises. Like his father Isaac, Jacob, facing death himself, pronounces blessing by faith. It's helpful to recall that Jacob gives this blessing when they're in Egypt. They're not in the Canaan land. Do you remember this? Joseph gets sold into slavery, ends up in Egypt. It seems like a colossal disaster. And then Joseph ends up being raised to prominence in Egypt. And he ends up being the means by which God provides bread to his family because there's a famine in Canaan. So they leave Canaan and they come to Egypt and they spend the rest of Jacob's life in Egypt. And there they are in Egypt. And guess what? They did really well for themselves. We read in Genesis 47, 27, Israel lived in the land of Egypt in Goshen and they acquired property in it and they were fruitful and became very numerous. It was almost like they had their own nation in Egypt. They had everything they needed in Egypt. But Jacob never allowed the wealth he accumulated in Egypt to keep him from focusing on a forever future with God. As Jacob is dying, he doesn't talk about Egypt and say, hey, look at all this great stuff we have. Look at our property and our houses and our land and our flocks. Instead, he says, look, God promised we're going to go to a different land where we're going to dwell with Him forever. We're fixed on that land. So he concludes his blessing to the sons of Joseph, Manasseh and Ephraim. He concludes his blessing in this way, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. Then in verse 22, we read about the faith of Joseph himself. I think it's interesting that even Joseph is saved by faith. He's not saved because he was sold into slavery. He's not saved because he forgave his brothers, not because he devised a plan to provide bread for his father and his brothers. He was saved like Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob. He's saved by faith. A faith that is expressed as he stares death in the face. Did you know when you're at the point of death, there's really not much you can do? But there's still something you can say. And what he said speaks volumes. What he said as he was dying is God's still going to bring his promises to fulfillment. God can use fathers in the lives of their children who believe that God keeps his promises. Did you know God can take one dad who gets his eyes focused on eternity and he can start a chain reaction that impacts eternity for generations? I think about my own father. My father was raised in a broken home. His father was an alcoholic. Mom was a, his mother was a manic depressive. And every, every Sunday, a man would walk through the neighborhood and would invite my dad to church. And my dad would decline. And my dad would decline. And my dad would decline. But at the age of 13, that man came through and he said, Hey, Mychie, that's what he called him. You going to church with me today? And my dad went to church. And he heard the gospel preached. And he surrendered his life to Jesus. And his life was never the same. And God called him to be a pastor. Went off to seminary, told his dad, Dad, I'm going to seminary to study to be a pastor. And his father said, I knew you would never amount to anything in life. And so off my dad went with no support from his family or from his parents. He studied the gospel. He studied the fact that Christ had been pr 
promised from the Old Testament forward, and he gave his life over to this work of preaching the gospel. And thousands have heard the gospel from my dad. But of all of the accomplishments in life, I think he would say his greatest achievement is that he poured his life and his heart into me and to my sister. And we're now walking and living for Jesus. And I would say to you on this Father's Day, of all the accomplishments, and there haven't been many, um, but of all the accomplishments that I, I've encountered so far in my life, my greatest one so far, and it remains to be seen, but the thing that I'm aiming at most is that my children and my family would walk and live for Jesus. That on my deathbed, my, my last breath would be, Jesus is the answer. All the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus. One man walking through my dad's neighborhood, begging my dad to come to Christ, has changed my life forever. Not just my dad's life, my life, and now my children's life, and whoever's life that they might impact as well. All because somebody believed that the promises of God are fulfilled through Jesus who died and was raised from the dead. And that's what Joseph believes as well. Think about Joseph. He was raised to prominence in Egypt. Egypt was basically his home for his whole life. And he does not regard Egypt as his home. Rather, he says to all the sons of Abraham who were gathered around, don't leave my bones here when God takes you out of this place. You better take these bones back to the land of our fathers because I believe that God's sending a son and he's going to raise him from the dead. And I want to be there when our fathers are raised up to life everlasting to worship the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the God who sends his son to take my place. One dad committed to the promises of God can set off a chain reaction that lasts for generations. Because Joseph was looking forward to the resurrection life, life everlasting in the new heavens and the new earth, we know that we too can look forward by faith to a resurrection life in the new heavens and the new earth. This morning, I want to give you three takeaways, three brief take takeaways from this text. The first is this, the need for the death and resurrection of God's Son is not new information in the New Testament. The need for a resurrection of the Son of God is taught to us even in Genesis. Abraham knew it and so did his sons. They believed that even their bones would be raised from the dead through the promised Son of God. Secondly, living for God still comes with tests of our faith that require sacrifice. In Romans chapter 12, we're urged to present ourselves to God as living sacrifices we don't need to kill our children we don't need to kill ourselves in order to worship god but we do need to lay down the priorities of this world in order to take up the life of christ to die to yourself means to die to whatever sin would tempt you to die to your pride to die to your selfishness to die to your greed and instead take up the life of christ there will be times in your life when you might have to choose between a promotion and following jesus between selling that business and following Jesus. Between what you're going to do in your marriage and following Jesus. There are seasons in the Christian life when following Jesus requires sacrifice. And the reason that you sacrifice in this world is because you know God's going to raise you up in the world to come. We don't lose anything by sacrificing for the one who's going to give us life everlasting 
in the new heavens and the new earth. And finally, I want to ask not just fathers, but all of us, when physical death comes, what will be your story? What will be your testimony? What will you have to say? If God, in His providence today, said today was your day to take your last breath on this earth, what would be your testimony? Do you have confidence that your buried bones will be raised up to dwell with the people of God who have had faith in every generation? Will you leave that testimony to your family? Are you living your life for this world and the pleasures of it? Or for the world to come that's on the way by faith in Jesus, the risen Son of God? Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I give you praise for the examples that we have in Hebrews chapter 11. God, I thank you for Abraham, who by the time that he's 100 plus years old, that when you come to him and you ask him to obey, that he just goes. God, I ask that, that for some maybe this morning who, who feel stuck, who, who feel... Maybe, God, they're, they're in a place where you're calling them to launch out and, and to do something that's bold and risky and doesn't even fully make sense, and you're calling them to do it for the glory of Christ, God, that you would, you would embolden them to obey and to launch out in faith because whatever it costs in this life is nothing compared to the glorious life we have in the resurrection body yet to come. God, for those who don't have a story, God, if you were to... If you were to Say, today's the day that they're going to die, that they're going to breathe their last physical breath. And, and if they had a chance to tell someone what they were looking to and looking forward to, that, that they don't have the assurance that they have new life through Christ. God, that today would be the day that they would die to themselves and the pleasures of this world which are fleeting and they would take up Jesus and life everlasting in Him. God, I thank You for the privilege and the joy of being gathered together as your people as we begin to contemplate your sacrifice. That Jesus, you did everything Isaac did not have to do and you did it to rescue sinners. God, as we approach this time of partaking of the Lord's Supper, God, we confess we're sinners and we ask, Lord, that you would search us deeply and help us to examine ourselves and if there be any wrong way within us, God, that you would forgive us, that you would purify us. God, if there's there's anything between us and a, a brother or sister, God, that, that it would be resolved. Lord, we thank you for the elements of the Lord's Supper, the bread representing the body of Jesus and the crushed fruit of the vine representing his blood shed for us. God, we thank you and give you praise for Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.